You're tuned in to RX Radio. Movement prescribed. Brought to you by Prescript.com. A personalized approach to keeping you healthy and making your best even better. Your hosts, Dr. Jordan Shallow and Dr. Jordan Jinta. Welcome back, guys. Another episode of RX Radio. Uh, we're on site and on location. Yeah. This would be like the MTV Cribs where you say, well, is this, I don't want to know if this is where the magic happens because I don't want to know if I'm sitting at anything. No, I have to return this couch. So, Do you actually? Yeah. What's it, what, is it a loader? What is it's this? uncomfortable. Oh, okay. It's not the worst one. I actually left a review. I was in Airbnb in London for everybody's wedding a couple of weeks ago. And the review was, uh, it has a roof. It was the shittiest Airbnb I've ever stayed in. It was like a college house. Fucking holes everywhere. I had to take pictures to make sure it didn't get pinned on me. And I said, it has a roof. And you have to stay at this place just to see how uncomfortable this couch is. One star. And that was my That's whole amazing. rating. It was just, it was that bad. I've been to 100 Airbnbs and this couch was, this isn't that bad. I've been chilling. But uh, yeah, man, tell us, tell us what's going on in your world. Tell us uh, the updates with K2 coaching and all that. Um, yeah. You know, this episode gets a little bit deeper into the way we think um, laterally. And I think that's probably the one thing in my experience in doing this in strength conditioning and all this stuff, the people I'm drawn to are people that think laterally. It's a way that I think that I think um, when I kind of take this metacognitive look at the thought process that I have. Um, but yeah, t- tell us a little bit about what's, what's going on in your world, man. It's been a minute. It's nice to be back. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah. It's good to have you back in town. I'm like neck deep in obviously uh, developing and writing skill acquisition course, a manual to go with it. Um, so if like, I thought I liked skill acquisition before spending, you know, 20 hours a day, uh, writing and researching and putting together the course, I've obviously learned to love it probably to an extent that no one needs to. So that's what I've been running on. Um, K2 coaching's like exploded. I've got three clients in the city. I've got 37 clients around the world. So I live in different time zones every day, which is pretty cool. Like I have a couple days where like I live in like Dubai's time zone, the UK time zone. Um, and structure my days around those. Do me a favor. Those days, can you can we get Daft to send you the whole getup? Like just walk around in yeah. white robes and like the, the the red picnic basket on your head. That's what I'm gonna start. <laughs> so fucking I'm gonna start good. rocking up to the zoo like, like that. I have to refer to you as Sultan Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> like Tuesdays. These are my Dubai days. Yeah. The Shah of strength and stability. <laughs> but um, yeah, man. So that's been blowing up. And then uh, next week, the K2 coaching app drops, uh, which provides like a far more. I don't want to say template because it's not a template, but it provides like what we're saying is like a practical adaptation of the lateral thought process of movement. So the K2 app will just be a hub for, for programs in which we can now see a practical adaptation of all the lateral thinking that I talk about. Yeah, and I think like if anyone's listening to you talk, if they haven't, buckle up, grab a coffee, grab a rain, grab an ephedrine, sit down and with a pen and a pad and try and keep up have a stenographer i think a stenographer would be really good to listen and like write down shit when we start going but i think the nice thing about it, and like i've seen obviously like a lot of like your work is that if you get and that's the hard part right like we just say template is a template is a template and it kind of has a negative connotation but if you listen to the stuff that we talk about more specifically obviously the way the, what you talk about you can begin to adapt these templates Right, like everything, the more high resolution we can make a model, the more the adaptable the model becomes. Right, if there's a low resolution model, then there's a certain amount of variables that will inevitably break the system. Right, you get the forbidden 404 page not found. Right, but like 
the resolution, the depth and the detail of the models that you operate in are like are if you can ha think critically about, you know, how we index and scale movement, the templates are you could run the templates and come up with a totally different uh, a totally different desired adaptation, a totally different start and end point for or end point more so when you go through these programs and you start to think critically about indexing and scaling the movements as you see them, you know, across time, but also like time longitudinally, but also time throughout the day. Um, and we talk a lot about that in micro progressions in periodization in training economy. Uh, so I think it's super interesting. Uh, this is, it's always, I love, and we talked about this before, like the, the, just the conversations of training philosophy, I think are super interesting. Yeah. Like in one podcast, we talk about Stalin, Mao, yeah. Hitler, uh, Charlie Francis. Um, where else do we go with it? Uh, a Japanese roboticist. Yeah. And all of this at Rashid Wallace Rashid and Wallace. Chauncey. Yeah. Right? Cause of course those seven things all go together, but I think it's, it's always good to like, you know, you, 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 you put me onto this idea of the, the ghost in the machine Yeah, and like I, to be able to peel back the face of the programming and look beneath the Excel spreadsheet and say like, right, what's the engine of this thing? Where, what is the ghost of this machine? So it's always cool. Like when I get a chance to talk, I fuck, I talk to you every day of my life and it's, it's never, it's never not like a stimulating conversation. Like I think we always come up with ideas that are, uh, I think unique at the very least. And if it's one thing I fuck with when I'm, you know, I'm 30 years old now, it's like, if people can come up with original thought, right? Like we ranted a little, we ranted a little bit about that and people's inability to do so uh, beforehand. But it, it's really cool when I think I highly suggest uh, heading over to, it's k2coaching.ca, yeah. right? k2coaching.ca uh, and just checking out the templates. But also I, I, like my buddy, Kyle, you know, Kyle Trainer, he always yeah. says like, look, indulge. Like don't just be a part of it to be a part of it. Like indulge in it. Because I think if you just listen to even just this podcast alone and we, we, the way we talk about training economy and, and compounding interest and, and um, you know, scaling and indexing exercises and you just take one of these templates and then you can start to see so many more dimensions. You, see, you start to see all the moves, right? Like I think of like a magic trick. Like if, I, like if I'm Copperfield looking at Dave and Blaine going like, I know how you cut that hat out of the rabbit. Like, wait, what? You got a hat out of a rabbit, not a rabbit out of a hat? I think listening to stuff like this makes that makes that possible. And I think it makes going through that training experience so much more fun. Yeah, I think it's like it's like if you book a call with me, you're probably getting like, you know, you're getting the moonshine before it's been distilled down. You know what I mean? Like it's probably a little bit too strong. It's going to fuck you up. Probably going to fuck me up. But it's like as I boil these ideas down that like everything I've ever talked to with a client or anybody who's reached out, it's like I've talked to you first and it's this highly caffeinated stream of confidence, confidence really, but consciousness. And then it's like as I distill this down over conversations with clients that I have or potential clients or, or people that book consultations, it's like I distill these ideas down to what's going to become like this skill acquisition course and is now accessible to anybody. It's not 100 proof anymore. Like, dude, like mix it with Coke, put it with ice, do whatever you want. Like at the end of the day, we all just get lit off of it. And it's like, you know, chase it with whatever you want to chase it with. Yeah, I think talking is the root of thinking. Yeah. And we talk about, you know, disproportionate, uh, skill being acquired by those that can stay in the game, and I think at our level, when we when we operate both as like educators, the more we do it, or you hope the better we can do it, Seriously. right? And like you, toward the end of the episode, you actually go in on like a full day of knee flexion November, <laughs> and just how you satirically would program, but actually in a very cerebral way, 
like this idea of training knee flexion every day and still yielding progressive, you know, uh, micro progressions and adaptations as a consequence of this thought process born of skill acquisition, but superimposed over strength conditioning models while understanding allostatic load and, and relative stress and using this lateral thought process of training economy. And it's just like, that's, that kind of thinking doesn't happen by taking tests, right? That kind of thinking happens from having conversation, yeah. right? To be able to have the clients and speak with them. I think that's where so many coaches go wrong. So many coaches that like I talk to don't talk like, oh, it's email check-ins on Friday. It's like, why do you have such a resource? You have such a resource to be able to verbalize. Someone's going to sit and listen to you. Are you yeah. serious? Like this podcast for me has been uh, the, probably the biggest catalyst because I can synthesize my thoughts and and trial them over this in the same way we trial ideas like hey man, what do you think of this like how many conversations have we started like, hey man, what do you think of this yeah and then it's just like next thing you know we're all 400 megs in right like we're like where the fuck did the sun go but born of that is a thought people like this i don't think people realize how little they think and it's it's it, it, I, sometimes i wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy because like, i don't there's nights where like we'll I'll text you about something. You'll text me, and it's way past the time that most people are still awake. Yeah, but that it's kind of gifts and a, or blessing and a curse because when you think it's and you know how to think, you know that verbalizing and 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 and, and conversation is such an integral piece in forming your ideas. And you know whether it's a text message or whether it's a podcast. And now this is going to be a regular thing. So stay tuned for that. I think it's you can see who puts the time in to think about it. And so that's the exciting thing about this episode. Now, uh, we're going to get into it. Um, K2coaching.ca. So this is going to go. I want to make sure that I get this right and we're not. Um, uh, let me double check the calendar here while I got you. This will be going up on uh, the 14th of uh, October. So this will be up next week. We're recording. It's currently Thursday. So K2 Coaching will be live. live. Right. So head over, um, head over to K2coaching.ca. Um, check out some of the templates, but listen to the episode. And I think like Kyle says, indulge kind of in the content and try to see, like I would try and do it, like look at, like when people paint with classical music on, like listen to Killian rambling your fucking ear, like the ghost machine that he is while you look at this, these training, you know, models and, and to start to see where these pieces are, right? Like that's one of the best, one of the best compliments you can get as someone who like, is you educate a lot of people that you, coach yeah right like there are students that then turn into clients and it's like one of the best compliments that i get in that scenario is like it all makes sense because it's reps and sets right but then if you want to if you want to really indulge in the nuance uh, of everything you start to see the rest periods manipulate you start to see all the things i think of it like those three-dimensional printers it's like if you get a different perspective of it you know people sometimes they just see black and gray tiles but at the right angle and the right light at the right time when you know how to not or know how to look through the reps and sets you see the fucking 3d spaceship yeah right and i think that's the cool thing about it but uh, i i don't want to bend the ear of those uh listening guys do enjoy the episode it's it's the most fun i get to have in talking about training philosophy i think we come up with some pretty pretty backwards they're so backwards that i think they're quite progressive and forward ideas when it comes to training this is probably one of my i would say this is of the concepts we've discussed this this encompasses a lot of our my favorite ideas and how we think and act more importantly about the way we program for clients and athletes yeah i could do away with all right now if you could do away with one saying on the internet 
It's a Vibe or Yas Queen? What would you get rid of? Oh, Yas Queen's got to go. Yeah, Yas Queen can go. Yas Queen's what, out. What really has to go is what's the fuck? What the fuck people say? People say, uh, uh, I don't know who needs to hear this, but that's a common one. Then you probably shouldn't say it. Yeah, we, we or you probably do know who needs to hear it, and then just tell that. Or you're just a coward. Yeah. So that's what you're saying. Yeah, just tag I don't know them. who needs to hear this. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. I know exactly who it is, but I'm just too afraid to tag yeah. you. I think all posts should be tagged with the person you're tagging to. Fair enough. Yeah, but a lot of social media is done. Like, there's so much subliminal warfare over social. Oh, it's great. Like, <laughs> it's great. When you know, like, I would say 95% of posts are in direct opposition to another thought process directly aimed at one person. Yeah. Yeah, or like a field of view. And it's just like this, people like, oh, it's so creative and original. It's like, no, no, this is, this. you've been thinking about this for a while. Yeah. This has been like burning into your memory. It's the weirdest thing because it's the platform that has the greatest reach, but with the most isolated messages. Like people, A, only speak to like their cone of influence. And two, usually one person within that cone of influence. Right. But I think it's still less egregious than Twitter. Yeah, well, Twitter has like what what is it called? Subtweeting, where you don't mention the person. That's what it is. Like, you call people and you don't mention them on Twitter. I think it's called a subtweet. I have no idea. I don't know. I know as much about Twitter as I knew like the stock market. Like they seem like these because they both seem like they're trading in the same hysteria. Yes. It's like someone on Twitter is basically, and I've said this before about other like social media platforms, but that is very like you can create value out of thin air on Twitter by like retweeting. Cause I feel like it's more of an adult, like an adult platform, like the way it's been politicized over the yeah. past like eight years, like the two election uh, campaigns. But I like, I, I try to keep in touch with some of the news and I stopped listening to news when tweets were being referenced with political candidates. And it's just like, referencing 140 characters or less on an opinion is probably not a good idea. Yeah, and it's just like, that's just the attention span of people, right? It's like, after 140 characters, people fall off. But is it, though? Like, people listen to hours of us rambling on end. I don't know, though. I think it's the same thing as, like, I was having this discussion about the way television works and why television is now way more popular than movies. But it's because, like, television follows a similar, like, very familiar story arc so whether you realize it or not, you actually know like the cadence of an episode of TV. So the familiarity breeds confidence and comfort, and that's why people will watch it. With a movie, you've never seen it before. You don't know like the rhythm and cadence of the movie. With television, it's like, I know it's 22 minutes long. I know the episode starts with like some type of problem. The middle of the episode is the solving of the problem. There's an A and B storyline that merge at the end. Every television show operates identically. Right. So it's like we get used to that. And that's why film doesn't work anymore. Because our attention span is now limited to like not only 22 minutes, but 22 minutes divided into like 4 minutes and 22 seconds. Right. And then like 30 seconds of something flashing in your face. Well, and then take that even further, right? Like, and I, when, I, when you say television, you mean like Netflix. Right? Because yes. like cable TV has gone the way of yeah. the dodo bird. But, but like take that even down to the way they shoot the Kardashians. Right. Because now it's like you, you break it across these like three major, you know, parts of the essay storyline of the half hour. And then you can break the, each, you know, the intro, the body and the conclusion. And you say break it down to 30 seconds. It's like, have you ever tried to watch the epileptic fit that is the Kardashians? Yeah. I don't think there's a frame that lasts longer than like four seconds before yeah. they're jumping to the next thing. And it's just it's like, oh, fuck, who said it? It was such a good line. Uh, Tim Dillon. Tim Dillon, so Lundy, if you're listening to this, 
Lundy is Tim Dillon. I was at a wedding with Lundy and they're literally the same person. Like just the most like honest, like unabashed, like I will say anything, but it's like, they're just keeping you on the needle. Like yeah. it's literally just like the drip of what's going to come next. What's going to come next. What's going to come next. Um, I don't even know how, how do we even get started on that? Uh, we, we were saying what needs to be eliminated from the internet. Oh, and it's, you know, it's what guys, you know, what has to go other than Yasmin, I could get away with self care. Self-care has got to go. That's a whole, that's a, that's a problem. Yeah. If that's a vibe, that's, that's got to fuck right off. I have a lot of problems and I've never solved them with avocado toast and shoving a dildo up my ass. Right. Or no, what gets me is dudes getting pedicures. Don't touch my feet. Yeah. I like, I don't hit those related videos on the internet. Like I'm not a feet guy. I'll never understand like, oh, self, you know what self-care is? Self-care is waking up at 3.30 in the morning. So you can somehow in the run of your day, get enough shit done to make enough money to still have a roof over your head that's self-care if that's not your self-care fuck you you yeah. don't have a problem you don't it's like getting your norma tech boots for <laughs> fucking like your 800 meter walks you do a day it's like you don't do enough to warrant any sort of advanced recovery yeah right like you don't you don't have enough stress that you need to have this self-care once a week like my great-grandfather walked across poland with two swollen legs because he was mustard gas in the war you think the first thing he did was like oh god you know, I think I'm getting bunions. Like, fuck you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, no. I hope I don't have to amputate both my legs. And people are up about like, oh, like self-care is so important. It's like, have you tried working? I think working is really important. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's weird at a time too, like where people have been trapped inside for so long and then they get back to work for a week and they're like, I really need to do some self-care. I need to find time for myself. I, yeah, I'll never. That would, if I had to pick one, that had to go. If I could jettison one social behavior that people project into the world, because yeah. I think it just it makes it like a state of fragility that's just not there. Yeah, and it's. I think it's like we've had this conversation. I don't know a hundred times in the last month or so. I hate like curated experience. Yeah. And I find self care is the most curated experience because it doesn't exist unless it exists on the internet. Right. Like Instagram goes away, so does avocado toast. Yeah. And skincare routines. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I wash my face with dish soap. I look great. <laughs> it's fine. Well, I mean, there's no more uncurated experience than, than the bright pink shorts yeah. with the half slides on the couch in the in the condo. Yeah. But like yeah. that's the thing. It's like if. I, I don't like any experience that I feel wouldn't exist unless you had a front facing. But camera. I see, and I, there's a, there's a flip side of that to me. It's like, I value so much more experiences that exist outside the internet. Yeah. Like there's things I've done in the last couple of months that I did for me that people won't know about. Like there's, there's, yeah, there's just, and I don't even, I don't even want to lead on more than that. Cause I don't even, I don't want to even talk about it. And I love the things that, and it's not that I'm, actively avoiding like oh i don't want to post this which are there's some things where it's like no like even if it's subtle in the background whatever but there's things i just it doesn't even cross my mind like you're just in the moment like i've met a few people that and i know I, I, people you know they meet us and we're training whatever and like oh can i take a picture when i meet someone that i would really want to take a picture with I'm so enamored in the experience yes. of like getting to spend time in the sake in the fucking bajillion star universe multiverse at the same time i'm in the same room as this person the last thing i want to do is pull out my phone yeah so it's like as the same time as like oh you know i don't like the curated experience that exists online it makes me value so much more than times in which i'm like i didn't even think about pulling out my phone 
And that's the thing. It's like, I think of like times with you or like times with, you know, other friends that I have that I remember. And it's like, I don't remember anything. There's a photo of it's yeah. like, it's all the, like the inside jokes or like, it's those experiences that you didn't stop to take a photo or whatever, make a tweet about it or make a boomerang of it. It's like, man, when you were a kid, none of this existed. Right. And you have the best memories from when you were a kid. And like, that's the thing. It's like when you were a kid, you have all these memories that you don't have pictures of, but you remember every time you go to a family event. And it's like, cause that's not curated experience. It's authentic. Like, Walking the train tracks in Windsor, like jumping on a fucking mattress. That's a sick memory I'll always have. My dad rolling up and beating us all up. But like, I don't have photos of me jumping on a mattress on the train tracks on like Drew Road, but that's amazing. Kids won't have that. No. And it's weird. Like when I grew up, I thought I, I was of a tainted generation. Like yeah. where we'd be what? We're millennials? Yeah. Whatever. Whatever that means. We're born of within the chronological order of which that, that would be uh, like sort of our taxonomy. But it's like, I thought like, oh man, like we'll never like, fa I was on Facebook, maybe in high school, nah, yeah, like late high school, MySpace, like most of high school, if I memory serves me correctly, I'm like, oh man, this is different. Like, like my dad never had this. This is so weird. Like, I don't know how I feel about this. Like I, I want to kind of be like, I want to listen to Bob Seger vinyls and watch VHS tapes and all this stuff. And I really tried to like push back. And then once I realized I was too into it, I was like, oh, this is really strange. But now I'm starting to see like, I feel like there's quantum leaps in social behavior that are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Like the difference between who would have come before us? We were millennials, Gen Xers. I think so. Gen Xers, I think. Gen X, millennial, then Gen Z is the coming up. If sure. I'm, so anything past, past 96 or 97, I think you're considered Gen Z. Um, and I could totally be fucking that up. But it's like, I didn't see that much different no. between, like my sister would, I think, she might be a millennial by that taxonomy, but I think she's more to like the Gen X side. But I, now I look at like what's coming up behind us and it's like, that's a freight train. Like that's, that's, this is not okay. This is not a direction. Like I want off this ride if that's what's next. Yeah. It's like, I think it goes back to like that idea that it's like, like we, I always strongly believe like humans are the sex organ of the machine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's I've like, heard that. it's true in a way. Like I think of evolution as like, like we've domesticated like the biggest animals in the jungle. Right. It's like at one point, like what the lion is the king of the jungle or whatever. It's like, well, not anymore. Like now I'm the king of the jungle, Right. but we're not even the king of the jungle. The internet is the king of the jungle. Right. So it's like, I think at some point, like we have to accept the fact that it's like, regardless of if we think we're steering the ship, it's like, we're here driving technology forward. So it's like at some point we just become this driving force, this horsepower, this gasoline behind technology, right? It's like we see that. Whereas like as technology advances, it becomes exponential. But it's to what degree do you see that exponential nature of it like just fully encompass us, right? Like when, when do robots become sentient? Right. Right? Like when does it go well, full matrix? Like happened. I'm plugged into the machine. It's already happened. Right? So it's like that's the weird thing to me. So... I always look at that and I always say this to people and they think I'm crazy. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just this idea that it's like we're here driving technology forward as much as, you know, like bio, we could can just consider it like biological technology, right? Like animals were here to drive us forward. Then we showed up. Now we're here to drive machines forward. Yeah. I wonder if the single celled organism looked at the multi celled organism and was like, this guy has no idea. He's yeah. so out of touch with his roots. It's unbelievable. Yeah. There used to be one of us. Now there's this guy's walking around with two cells. Fuck this guy. Yeah. So it's like, I just, I always wonder about that, right? It's like, well, what do we know? And like, what do we know in terms of like, I don't know. We were talking about like the uncanny valley. Right. 
And it's like... We'll transition into that, yeah. That's a really weird thing when you start to think about it in this sense, because it's like, at what point does that uncanny valley create the bridge to where we start to just accept yeah. like some next wave of robots? And I know I sound crazy. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's like, in purpose, like, are we driving this forward? And are we starting to see these abridged periods in technology, just like the, what is it, whatever it is, primordial man? At some point, you have to think, there was a guy like you and me, and there was a Neanderthal. And they made eye contact. Like there was one left and he saw the next wave and he was like, you're kind of the same, but a little different. Now we're seeing like uncanny valley with robots and technology. And it's like, you're kind of the same, but a little bit different. And at what point do we become the minority to that? Right. When are we in the, in that lull? Okay. You're too much like us. Now you gots to go. We're the Will Smith with the dog in (laughs) Times Square. We're the legends. Uh, Yeah. Charles Clark Square. Is that, no, Charles, is that what's. Charles Clark is Windsor. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that sounds about right. I've got Stanley Park, Moss Park. Anywhere where you see a tent was a park. Dude, what is going on here, man? Tent Crazy. city, man. Dude, I was driving by. It's like all of a sudden all the Home Depot's out of business and REI is everyone's home repair shop because yeah. everyone lives in a fucking tent. Just little propane tanks everywhere. It's like, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And I don't know. For a city this size, it's insane. But like it already has. Propane. Well, here's the hard part, right? Like there's... Everything, if it's happening, it's evolution and it's for a reason. Yeah. Which is the terrifying part. Because then you just feel like an anti-agent to evolution, which is like, I mean, if Jeff Goldblum has taught us anything, which I think he's taught us a lot, is like life finds a way. Yeah. Right? So it's just to what, like what point, what, where is, is there a point to being like, hey guys, maybe everyone like, let's not get the iPhone 11. Is it, I think the, is the wheel spinning too fast? Like, can you even slow it down? I had this conversation with someone the other day where they were all about like that movie that came out, The Social Dilemma, about like your saw. information getting tracked. Here's the thing. I, I don't know if you said this. Somebody said this to me. They're like, um, like, it's like nothing matters until it matters, or it's like nothing's wrong until it's wrong. It's like they can collect my information all they want. Like, what am I doing? What are they doing with this information about me? I'm sitting here in pink shorts. I got no money. What do you want from me? I'm on Amazon Prime buying short hats. Like I'm buying <laughs> orange hats on Amazon. Take whatever you want from me. It's like we, we see this idea of like data collection as a bad thing and it's like inherently wrong because we protect our privacy and our property. But it could also be just done for the reason they want it to be done, to show you things you want. I, but I think the, the overarching message there is like you're not like most people. Right. But I think you're the model of where most people should go because so like the world and like uh, I, I got put onto a podcast is really cool uh, called Professor G, Prof G. OK. This business professor, Scott Galloway. If you guys want to listen to something intelligent, stop this podcast right now and go listen to his. Um, and it's about like this idea of like the decentralized sharing economy. Yeah. Right. But it's like you are the living archetype of the next wave of how people should live. You're just ahead of the curve. I mean, I'll throw myself into that mix as well, but it's like, we are not, we don't have to be anywhere. Like this is kind of work. This is the second time I've had a coffee delivered to my door because I just couldn't be fucked walking to go get it. And it's just like, I think the message for people who are upset about the data collection stuff, it's not that it's upset about that's another, that's another noose on the neck. 
right? Like yeah. you got to go to your nine to five. You got to be there before your boss gets in. You got to leave after your boss leaves. Your, your kids got to go to soccer practice or whatever. It's like you aren't beholden to anyone or anything yeah, or any time very true. or any place. Like that's freedom. Time. So you can sub, you can you can like kind of you know uh, subjugate to this one impedance on your freedom because. The rest of the day, it's YOLO and pink shorts. Yeah, I guess that's so true, right? And I always look at that with stress, right? It's like control as many variables as you can and what you can't control. You know, it's easier to let it go. And yeah. it's like, for me, time is my most expensive commodity. If the inter internet wants it to be easier for me to find things I want and I don't have to leave the shoebox, right. I don't want to leave the shoebox. Yeah. Like, show me targeted ads. I want them. Yeah. I but, don't want to go using the internet. Right. But and yeah, like to double back, like the rest of your life is totally unfettered. It's Where I think everyone is. else, the rest of their life is completely structured and confined, right? So that to them is just, that's where they thought they had, they had some freedom, right? And then that's the last, like, cause it's, I didn't watch the, what is it? Social. Social dilemma. Yeah. Well, I, I've heard like the crux of the story and it's like, it's one of those situations where Bill Burr has a joke about, um, the owner of the Clippers when he got like pop for those racist text messages. And the joke goes like, what do you think he thought? He's like an 85 year old, like white billionaire. Like, of course this dude was a racist. Yeah. Right. And like, they don't, they didn't get mad at him. It was just such a funny story. If you follow up on it, that guy didn't, he used to put in place policy in his development businesses to actually limit yeah. African Americans from getting property. And no one bats an eye at that. But he like, goes to his gold digger side piece and says, hey, like, no black dudes at the game or whatever. He's like, why are we so offended by the individual act of that to it, which she might, may or may not exact? And I understand, like, it's heinous behavior, but, like, how have we not talked about the systematic approach? Yeah. Because it's like, I look at this in two, like, I look at this two ways, right? Like, the comparison, and this is going to be a little bit, like, of a lateral jump from a racist, you know, NBA team to uh, Stalin. But if you think about what happened in the... Uh, like in the Soviet Union in the early 1900s, it was at the systemic level. Yes. And it was so, because it was structured, because it was planned, no one really talks about it. Just like, you know, Buddy, what's his name? Um, oh, fuck, I can't remember his name. The owner of the Clippers. Uh, anyways, this, there was a, this was a policy he had in place at his firm, and it was on a letterhead, and it got facts, and there were meetings, and that was, so it, was a, it was built into the system. Where the text message was was a was, was very visceral. It was very personal. It was an individual act rather than the individual act being played out through a system. And that, that's why I mean, when I went to grade school or high school or both, I learned about the Holocaust because there was a there was a personal act to it, right? There was a single actor that seemed to be driving this, and you know the 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 Nazi camp doctors and Hitler's like prominence in being this sort of like. Um, this this single ruler, this single part of this meme theory idea that just it was, it was embodied by him solely, and then it's like we 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 leaned on that so much more, and we we kind of like turned a blind eye to like the governmental oppression and the systemic oppression of the Soviet Union that killed just as many, if not more, people. One is far right, one is far left, right? Yeah, you can see another example of far left when you go into like Mao's China, but it's just it's crazy to me how people just. If it's part of the plan, it's that Joker thing, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a Heath Ledger Joker thing where it's like, you know, if a soldier dies tomorrow or whatever, it's just like you get blown up and it's like, oh, it's all part of the plan, right? But if like the hospital, whatever, whatever. Um, so it's just crazy to me how we, we can't, we don't look at the outcome. We just look at like the perpetrator. And if it's hidden and shrouded behind like at an institutional level, 
regardless if the outcome is the same, we just kind of go, okay, well, that's the way it is. Yeah, and it's like this, it's a bizarre, um, like there's also like a level of like bizarre, like loyalty to um, just like a do- like a doctrine, right? Like there, with when you mentioned Stalin, like there was a big thing between like Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre, who were best friends at the time, both existentialist philosophers. And uh, they ended up having a falling out and Camus called Sartre out for being a coward because Sartre was a communist and supported Stalin. And Camus asks him like this now, you know, kind of immortal question of, you know, is it worth killing a hundred innocent people to kill one guilty man? And Sartre goes, yes. But Camus is like the act doesn't change exponentially based on how many people you kill. The idea is that you killed an innocent person to kill a guilty man, right? So Sartre, in his like blind belief into communism and in this, you know, unflinching loyalty to a doctrine, couldn't see past the doctrine for the act that was being committed by Stalin, and stayed loyal to the idea of communism. Whereas Camus was like, "That's it. This is ridiculous. I'm out." Yeah. Um, and it's just interesting. It's that same idea. It's right. It's like we're so blinded by, like you said, the systemic or systematic nature of something, that we accept things that possibly aren't true or aren't logical. Well, because it seems. It seems like a, like too formidable an opponent. Yeah. Like a person you could take down, right? Like a person is is uh, like, uh, like a person can die, right? And with that dies the ide- the ideology that they enact, right? You cut off the snake at the head and the body will die. That's kind of like the idea with Hitler, and you know, large in part that was the case. And you start to see like Nazi sympathizers like fleeing to South America or you know elsewhere into like North Africa and stuff. But then it's just like. It's usually if the person is smart, dubious, but smart, they try and make it look like the system is enacting just what they want. Like Donald Trump is the president. Anyone can do this. Yeah. Right. So like you realize that, look, governments are pretty fragile, right? They're as fragile as the individual, each individual that's a part of them. So and like, you know, with that, see, I've been making jokes lately about that thing in Seattle, that like six block radius or Portland or wherever the fuck it is. Yeah. And it's just like. How is that possible? Like, it's clearly like that the, the machine is not this formidable opponent, right? Like, where you can topple it over, especially now, like, with social media. But, like, back to the point of this thing is, like, what did you think they thought? Like, did, was anyone, is this, this, should, this, should, this should surprise zero people, yeah. right? Like, how could anyone watch this and be like, man, really? It's like, dude, I have friends that only pay with check. Yeah. Like one of the smartest guys I know walked into my office one day and he just paid with a check and he used to work for DARPA and he was like, if you knew what I knew, you'd never use a credit card again. And I've just been had tinfoil hats in whenever I'm in my Airbnbs. But yeah, it's, it's crazy, man. I don't know how we got on the topic of this because we were meant to talk about like weightlifting things, but I don't know. It's just, I heard on a Tim Ferriss podcast once and he said, social media is a good tool, but a better master. Yeah. It's like, if you just use it as that. It, I think it, I think it makes your life exponentially better. I think it's great. Like how many people do we connect with? Yeah. Like the prescript coaching community, right? Your the K two coaching community. Ever all of your clients know each other now. Yeah, and they all kind great. of fly the flag. It's, I think it's a good way to establish like, you know, a community of people that you would otherwise never be able to connect with. Like how many countries do you have clients in? Yeah, it's great. Like pro, I don't. It's funny. I have three clients in Canada, out right. of forty clients. Right. That's insane. Yeah. Where it's like you would in the past be geographically bottlenecked to 
whatever, how many square miles I'm right. in. Right, yeah, to King's Point in Brampton. Yeah. Fuck the video. I'm, like, going up here and changing this. But then, you know, if you use it as it's meant to be used, yeah, that's better. Um, then all of a sudden, it's like, it actually makes things easier. But it's kind of like, you know, once people get on the needle, then it's game over, right? But, yeah, anyways, that's strength conditioning now, whatever we're talking about. Although you did kind of allude to what we were going to talk about, which was this idea of strength coaches trying to pair shapes, not pair shapes, like pear-shaped, but, like, trying to match shapes in the weight room that are seen on the field of play. And this idea of the uncanny valley, because that's probably worth, like, describing a little bit, as, as if you've never heard of the idea of the uncanny valley. It's an idea born of like a Japanese roboticist, which is basically like if you watch a movie or like in this case when they were manufacturing robots, like if you watch WALL-E, yeah. right, which is like a little fucking, you know, it's a box on like a Hummer SUV track or something that goes around and has a little voice and it beeps and buzzes. Looks nothing like a human being. So this graph plots how close something looks like us and then like from, you know, not at all like a character like WALL-E to like... Uh, an ex machina like chick. We got to talk about that movie because that movie's. Everyone loves that movie and they don't see the glaring hole in it. I think we've talked about it. Anyways, but like from the box that kind of sounds human and is barely even anthropomorphized, it might have eyes, to like all the way out to like, you know, that deuce or the ex machina fucking chick that looks just like us. They plot how we respond to it. Right, so we respond like pretty well to the Wally thing, and then when we start to see like the Simpsons, it's like okay, this is we have we have kind of fingers and hands. You know, Marge has green hair. That's kind of strange, but it's unlike us that it's it's, it's known to be of like it's known to be an animation. So yeah. we can we can suspend our disbelief and, and enjoy the, the the scenes and scenarios that these characters play out. But there's a peak to this graph prior to getting to 100%. So we kind of, let's say we have an, a y-axis and an x-axis. We start to ascend in sort of this like, uh, I don't know, maybe some sort of like linear, maybe a little bit concave uh, uh, curvature, and then we hit a peak, and then there's a stark drop off at say like 70% of the way. Where now all of a sudden we're starting to look too much like humans. These robots look too much like humans. These animations look too much like humans. And as humans, we just go, hold on. Yeah. This is getting weird. Like you're you're coming into our wheelhouse now. This is our territory. I can't discern or I'm getting to the point where I cannot discern a difference between you know Bill my neighbor and his sex robot he keeps upstairs. Right? Those are like the creepiest ones. And it's just like that uncanny valley and I uh, I was watching some shit not related to strength and conditioning, but it made me think about, you know, you talk a lot about shapes in strength and conditioning, right? Like, you know, reenacting shapes, but you also use it through like the uh, the skill acquisition model of associative autonomous or associative uh, or cognitive associative autonomous. And it seems as if you can navigate around this uncanny valley because what I see strength coaches doing is they in the weight room, they start to try and Sherlock Holmes and detective break down and CSI recreate these shapes on the field or the sport of play or the, the field of play whether it's baseball, football, basketball, whatever, whatever the strength and conditioning is an adjunct for. And they just start to replicate these positions under various loads. But I think, like my theory is that there's an uncanny valley that when in the weight room, we start to see shapes that are too similar to what's on the field, we actually start to drive a negative adaptation 
to the performance of those autonomous exercises or those autonomous movements when we actually start to do them on the field of play. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, right? And it's like the idea, I guess like the phrase I always use to try and create a discrepancy in this kind of weird bridge, bridging period where we create the Uncanny Valley is like you calibrate standing still before you calibrate moving fast. But how you calibrate standing still is never how you calibrate moving fast. And it's like I can strengthen the end ranges in an athlete based on the shape of the sport, but I'm going to strengthen or, or, or sit in these like-shaped positions in end ranges of an athlete. I'm not going to move through this dynamic associative plane of motion with a, like a weight room, with a strength resistance profile. That doesn't make sense. Like I'm not going to load a dude up with the baseball tied to the cable machine and have him hurl 90s off the mound. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to find exercises that live at either end range of movement to create capacity for what he does dynamically in between. So I'm not going to I'm not going to innovate. I'm not going to interrupt, you know, a movement pattern that's created, but I'm going to I always try and think of it like the idea is like the fastest uh like the fastest way to get between point A and point B is a straight line. Well, it's like, yeah, 100%, but there's tons of things that could happen in the middle. So it's like, I want to look at this cyclical approach to a straight line. Like, he moves in a straight line, but I paint the edges of that cyclical approach to it. So it's like, baseball is a great example of pitching. Like, I'm not going to have a guy do these loaded resistance profile throws and have him in positions he'd be in on the mound, but it's like, we're going to crank out high cable bicep curls to start creating, you know, stability and capacity and like end ranges of like an upwardly rotated scapula and, you know, external rotation. I'm going to do chest flies. So we get this strength and end ranges of, you know, adduction, internal rotation over pronation. I'm going to train a broad variety of ipsilaterally loaded movements because he's ipsilaterally loaded on the mound, but then he's going to go throw. And it's like, I've just painted the edges, which he may or may not ever achieve so that he can do whatever he wants to in between. Like Michael Jordan doesn't need to dunk a 12 kilo medicine ball to be better at dunking. Michael Jordan probably needs to do a bunch of capacity building, stability building, skill associated movements with his hips just so that he can go do Michael Jordan things. And it's like, I'm never going to interrupt the Michael Jordan things. And I think if we take something from guys like Mike Boyle, who's maybe too conservative on the injury prevention route, he at least had the intention of like, my job is to make sure they don't get injured, not to make them better. It's like my thing about Saquon Barkley, RIP. Yeah. Uh, but it's like Saquon Barkley can power clean 400 pounds. A 400-pound power clean didn't make Saquon Barkley. Right. He will do Saquon Barkley things, put the right modality in his hand. Like, yeah. I don't need to put him on the field, you know, with the barbell and have him, you know, run through the line, you know, Red Rover style. Right. I just think uh, you brought up an interesting point there about, like, creating, like, almost creating boundaries of end ranges. Yeah. I Think of it this way. Like, I, I've described to people like this in the past when I do exercises and as we superimpose the skill acquisition model over it. And let me know what you think of this. And because we were talking about this yesterday in the gym of like this idea of having a target, yeah. right? So if we spend time understanding that, okay, this is our, this is likely going to replicate the end range of our, our, our 
pitch or something like that. We're not going to then go full send from this end range all the way through. Maybe we have another exercise. It might replicate a fully shortened position or something or part of our shoulder joint in a fully shortened position. You know, maybe our trunk, uh, trunk rotation. But we're not going to put all these pieces together because these are all associative mechanisms that we're going to try and feed up. But I think what these end ranges allow us to do when we're trying to replicate shapes like a little bit more, like as you mentioned, st like almost statically, right, where I'm going to maintain the shoulder position. Like I always think, you know, I've driven, fuck, I've driven from Toronto to Windsor probably a thousand times in my life. Like not even exaggerating, like probably a thousand times. Yeah. When I get south of Chatham, I can do anything. Yeah. I can literally do anything because I know it so well. Once I hit, you know, you're, 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 you get out of the Chatham speed traps. It's like a fucking bad episode or it's a bad like take on super troopers. They're just bored OPP officers that'll pull you for, they'll pull you over for going a hundred. Yeah. Like this is Chatham OPP. They, just, they have nothing else to do. It smells like ethanol. They wonder how they fucking ended up in Chatham, Ontario. Anyways. So when I get home, it's like, I know all the moves. I know the straight line between it, but I know the destination, right? So, and, and we talked about this yesterday at gym, and it's like Charlie Francis, uh, Canadian strength coach, legend. If you don't know Charlie Francis, look him up. He used to make his sprinters run on the lane line, right? So to have a target. So he knows, like, you know, I use the Mikey from Recess reference when we start to pull, you know, the, the urinals out of the music room and all of a sudden Mikey's singing in, the, in, the, uh, in open spaces. You use the, uh, the, uh, the tactile feedback of the training wheels as yeah. an example of, like, you know, you couldn't have them too low because you'd never learned how to deviate or react with deviation of center of mass. And you can't have them too high because you'll never actually acquire enough skill in that sort of sweet spot. So I think training exercises that allow us to, and this is where the, the associative stops and I think the autonomous of actually doing the, the particular skill would start. So I would say that this is going to be the end in the gym. This is the peak before the valley. When we start to, okay, okay, I respect the shoulder is in this position at the beginning and at the end of the pitch. So now all of a sudden we have, we have targets, Correct. right? So we know, we know that we know the Chatham inter, the, you know, the Chatham intersection to Manning road to Cumsey, right? And so now it's autopilot. So it actually frees us up that we have a, a, a border on this movement and control and awareness and time and these associated mechanisms at the end of this movement. This is where our gym training stops because if we try and go any further than that and try and replicate, like you said, you know, we're going we're gonna to attach the straight handle titleist to the hammer strength thing and we're just going to try and John Daly it into the cardio section. It's just like that's now we're too like in the actual uh, uh, so, or the autonomous movement that we're trying to train. So I think spending time in these end ranges to create a, a, a mental border on the movement yeah. where it's like, okay, now we can allow ourselves to drive in the straight line. Like I kick into cruise control. I can hop in the back seat. Like it's a, it's a dead straight line. If I got lane assist, I don't need a Tesla. Yeah. Give me a V dub with lane assist. I'll literally go in the back seat and like, I'll know in like 45 minutes, exactly if I'm going a hundred, exactly when I got to Tilbury. Right. So I can, I can paint with my awareness. Now this entire yeah. range of the movement clearly just by defining the end range. And people always say, why does it always feel easier driving back? Cause you've, you already yeah. traversed, you found this, right? Yeah. So it's like, if I drive to like, I don't know, Montreal, it's going to feel really long. Cause I'm like, Oh, is this the exit? Oh, look at that. They got a, they got a Midas and a Jiffy lube in the same fucking parking lot. That's neat. Where it's like, I know all of this. Like when I drive through from Chatham to Windsor, I know all this. Like I, I'm, I've now, I've now created barriers here where it's like, look, everything within this 
is is can be autonomous now. Yeah. Right. So that's where I think it that would be a way to dictate your thought process around exercise selection because hyper specificity is a is I think it's a plague. It is. But it's hard because people like you know we talk a lot about specifics of biomechanics, and then some people question like, well, does does this matter? It's like. I mean, I, I don't, at a certain point, we're going to have to hand off, at least in, in strength and conditioning. But I think this theory allows us to give a cutoff of like, look, anything more like this, and we're just talking about shapes. We haven't even talked about systems yet. Anything more than this shape or a dynamic movement within this shape is too like the autonomous movement we're attempting to perform. It's too like our body doesn't, our body will learn this in a negative fashion. We'll learn it at a negative or at, at a slower speed. We'll learn it in a, in a compensated mechanic, right? And our body just will then have a negative outcome on the back end of it. Yeah, and it's like, it's the thing too, it, it, where it's funny because like the specificity of sport matters, but that's why people fucking play a sport. Like if you play basketball, you play basketball all the fucking time. Like you're always playing basketball. So it's like s the specificity of the sport exists in the sport. It's built in. It's like the greatest unit of developing a skill. You don't get to do anything else. That's why kids like when they're going to go play Premier League for soccer or football, if you're from you know, Europe and you're listening to this, you go live at an academy. Like you go to a school that's also your house, that also you play soccer at, and it's a subject that you learn. And it's like, that's all you do is play soccer. So it's like when you come in the weight room, the specificity isn't directed to sport. The specificity is directed to biomechanics. And the body moves the way it moves. Like, I don't know, man, like you've cut open cadavers, I haven't but I'm pretty sure bodies are bodies. So it's like to, to some varying degree and like the function of the body through gait cycle is the function, the action of a lat is the action, the action of a bicep to bicep. It doesn't matter if you play baseball, you play basketball, the bicep does bicep things. Right. So why the fuck am I doing basketball things with a bicep, right? right. I don't do yeah. bicep things with a basketball. Right, that'd be hilarious. Go right? there, four by 10 bicep uh, spalding curls. Yeah. So it's like, but why do we not make that argument? And then That's it pokes holes in everything. This argument, yeah. Right? No, like the I contrast. Do, yeah, the bicep does bicep things. Basketball does basketball things. When you enter the weight room, I start doing bicep things with you. Right. Dude, if you're fucking Bo Jackson, you can rip out of a helicopter, play the home run derby, get back in the helicopter, go play the super, like the, the pro bowl. And I don't know, go home and beat up your neighbor. I don't know. <laughs> throw an acorn through a screen door window. You do anything when you're Bo Bice because Bo Bice's biceps do bicep things. Right. Or Bo Jackson, Bo Bice. Didn't he win Bo American Bice. Idol? I don't know. That's I on think you. So. Abby. That yeah. sounds like a genre of music I don't listen to. Yeah, but it's like, I'm sure Bo, Bo Bice can Bo do Bo Bice. Wasn't he like the white kid? Yeah, he had the long That's hair. That's hilarious. He can do hair things. You but anyways. Yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, it's the thing. It's like the specificity of the sport is entirely accurate and, and valid and meaningful to the sport. But the minute you enter the weight room, just do specific weight room things. Right. It's relative to the borders of biomechanics. Yeah. Like relative if, to the borders of the skill of the sport. If what we're talking about is like with the high cable bicep curl and the cable chest fly with the suggestion of overpronation and, you know, ultimately adduction inter internal rotation with, you know, someone standing ipsilaterally or half kneeling and like we're going to say these paint, paint the borders around the strike box. It's like when I come in the weight room, the weight room itself is the structural constraint to the borders of which I'm going to paint a picture. It's like, I'm now in the weight room. These are my modalities. Right. There's no pitching mound. There's no batter's box. None of that exists. I'm in a weight room. Like I'm going to pick up a barbell. The barbell now suggests the message that I'm sending. Right. And yeah. I think we can't Joel Seidel myself into virtual reality anymore. Like I have to accept that those are the modalities I've been given.
Yeah, I, I think it's it's hard because sports are asymmetrical. Yeah. So we we don't know that that like it's like red wire touching the blue wire in the weight room, right? Because I feel like uh, I think it's Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Like it highlights uh, what I think to be like a really un like not a unique principle, maybe actually a universal principle, but talks about this software engineer, actually from Mountain View, where I used to live. Uh, he's a grade school, elementary school basketball coach who was a software engineer and he wanted his daughter to play, but the school didn't have a coach. Guy knew nothing. I think he went to like IIT, like in, in the, uh, India Institute of Technology. It's like the MIT for uh, the all of India. So imagine like MIT, but a billion people are trying to get in. So, but he wasn't actually limited by the preconceived biases that came to training basketball. He was able to look at it very objectively and said like, okay, how, like, what is the problem? What is the bottleneck? And it was just, it was basically work capacity. So he just ran. Like all, all their practice was was running. Like, let's just get really good at running. Why? Because every other 12-year-old girl gets gassed in like the third quarter. If we're not gassed, it doesn't matter what we do, we're going to be better. So they ended up winning two, three, like nation championship for grade school basketball, which shout out the United States for having such a thing. I don't think that yeah. exists in Canada. But it was, he was not limited by what some people would think to be a limitation, right? They, people would look at his no basketball experience. Exactly. That allowed him to see like clearly what the issues were, where I think sometimes we get so into the weight room and that's where strength condition strength conditioning coach starts, right? Strength and conditioning coach are meatheads that were failed athletes that just want to be part yeah. of the game. Hi, Jordan, nice to meet you, right? I'll throw myself in that mix. I'll be the first guy in the pool. But I think it's like when we start to understand that there are different, like these parameters that guide our decisions here cannot be extrapolated outside of this environment. They're very specific to the environment of the weight room. And uh, we just haphazardly overstep our borders and start to think like, well, if this works for the bench press, then the bench press is going to work for this. It's like, no, no, no. Like, or like, if this works, if I, my dips kind of look like my bench press, then that works for my bench press from like a primary supplemental. If my primary is now the pitch, now maybe like, you know, a pitch with a weighted ball or something is going to be the answer. It's like, no, like it's, it's two totally different rule books that govern yeah. these landscapes. Yeah, it's just like, it's this weird idea of of finding familiarity in things, right? Like you said, it's like, well, if this looks like this, it looks like that. And it's like, it's just res respecting things from the point of view of, I think like a sidebar that's completely unrelated, but I had a conversation yesterday and like, it's widely known. Like I have no formal education in this. Like I didn't go to university for science. I don't know how to do science, but I know how to do business. Like I run my own business and I look, work in a shoebox in the sky and time is my most expensive commodity. So when I look at exercise and and coaching and managing athletes, I look at it as economics, not as of science. I have, no, I have no understanding of science. I don't. I don't know how it works. I failed science. Fuck it. Business, I get. Like, I know how money feels. I know how money tastes. I know how it smells. And I know that I, when I don't have any, I want to go make more. So it's like when I look at training an athlete, I look at it as a bank account. And I have a neurological and physiological bank account with that athlete. Now, if I don't take into account what's happening outside of the weight room or outside of the program that I'm sending them, I'm not going to accurately associate what they can afford with what I'm applying to them. So if we understand that like the sport, to whatever degree it becomes autonomous for somebody, there are neurological adaptations and stressors in sport or on a field or on a mound that aren't incurred in the weight room. Because with an athlete, their paycheck is derived from what they do on the field. So it's always going to be neurologically expensive. Now, if they roll into the weight room, I have to understand the cost and benefit 
of this application of sport to what we do. So there could be some days where these guys don't do anything with any level of skill in the weight room, and they probably shouldn't because they've spent that neurological bank account. Like I can roll into the Apple store, and if I have $200, I don't get to buy an iPhone. It's not, okay, we'll give you the iPhone and like maybe come back in a few weeks or maybe don't and maybe ever you can afford it, but you can go and have it. It's like, no, if I want something expensive, I have to pay for it. So when an athlete rolls into the weight room and they're, you know, playing basketball four or five days a week or they're throwing long balls, they're hucking 90s off the mound like Max Velo, it's like they come in the weight room, they can't afford anything expensive. So don't strap a kettlebell to one side of the bar and a fucking dumbbell to their ankle and have them stand on one leg on a bench with the Sorinex slam attachment. Like, fuck off. Like, the guy's going to go do biceps in the corner because that's what he can afford. So it's like our job is to build, build resiliency. And, like, we come in – our back-end work as strength and conditioning coaches is front-end work to the next day. So it's like if we looked at our job as more economically-based than science-based, it makes exercise selection so easy. Yeah, because the last thing, and here's where I think strength coaches get, like, they get lost, right, is they, they think they can credit physiological debt, right? They think they can credit physiological yeah. debt. They think that they can, they can allow, you can go into physiological overdraft. But if we, you know, hey, guys, you know, go sit with the nutritionist and we're going to get blue light blockers and we're going to do this, it's like, dude, that return is pennies on the dollar. Pennies. Right, like your Normatex, your 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 hot tubs, your this, your that's like you're not going to be able to pull out of the physiological overdraft you're putting in from not understanding the economics of training and sport. It's like I think the greatest piece of advice I ever learned it was from my uncle, uh, shout out Windsor. He, he said, "Do you want to have a million dollars?" And I was like, "Yeah, man, that'd be dope." And he was like, "Stop spending money." And I was like, what? He's like, that's how you make a million bucks. Just stop spending money. Eventually it'll happen. And it's like, if you don't stop spending money, it doesn't matter how much money you ever make, you're never going to make a million dollars because you're going to spend it all. So it's like with athletes, stop spending their money. It's like we are the, it, if you look at the, the payroll of a sports team, huh. a strength and conditioning coach, probably the cheapest guy on the roster. You're not up there, right? You're not. No. So guess what? you're also the cheapest adaptation that that athlete will ever adapt to. So be cheap about it. It's like, be smart and don't offer a poor service, but it's like, I'm offering inexpensive adaptations to an expensive clientele. Like his expensive adaptations are on the field. He rolls in here. I'm backending the expensive stuff. Like I'm trying to figure out how I can save him money when he gets on the field again. Yeah. It's like, oh, you throw 95? How can I make 95 less expensive to you neurologically? Oh, we can associate end ranges of your pitch so when you get on the mound, you don't get the yips because you don't know where your shoulder and elbow are going to be? Right. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. It's like my job is to make your job less expensive to you so you get to keep more of the money and you're not paying that physiological tax every time you step on right. the field. Right, so you're, you're, you're now going from Killian, the coach, to Merv, the accountant. Yeah, that's all yeah, I am. That makes sense. Yeah, I like, that. I like that analogy of like becoming the accountant. Like how can I hide... How can I hide our money? Yeah. Like, how can I wash it? Can I, where's it, where's it overseas? Can I get you in the Caymans? Yeah. You offshore holdings, that kind of stuff. Yeah. If we look at the greatest athletes ever, it's the Michael Jordan flu game. It's like he had the flu and he fucking destroyed the other team. We're going to remember guys like Russell Westbrook, LeBron James, Michael Jordan. You're going to remember guys that played 48 minutes of a game every single night, but you remember them because LeBron James is literally invincible. Yeah. 
How the fuck does he play so... And it's like, guess what? If I get to spend the most time on the court at 70 to 90% exertion, I will end up being the best player. It's economics. I get the ball more. I get to be seen more. So it's like, it's the guys who gas out after 11 minutes that are never going to be top athletes. So it's like the strength and conditioning coaches should just be making that job, the job that pays them far less expensive for them to do. Like you're not, no pitching staff and no strength and conditioning coach is ever training a pitcher to throw the first five pitches. You're training the pitcher to throw the 105th pitch because that's when he lights dudes up. And that's why I said, like, there was, uh, there was a playoff game back in, fuck, I was probably 10, 12 years ago, where everyone got so up, Zidane Chara. Yeah. They were, like, five OTs deep in a playoff game. And Chara was sitting there sucking back, like, a Diet Coke. Or, like, a Coke. Everyone's like, what is he doing? He's a pro athlete. I'm like, exactly. He's a pro athlete. It doesn't matter that yeah. he's sipping Diet Coke. This guy probably played his entire childhood. And it's so funny you mentioned, like, Get them on the field more there, get better. Because one of the, well, there's an economical principle called the Matthew principle, right? And it's, 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 people think it's a, it's a distribution based off capitalism. It's just a distribution. I mean, it's more so applied to economics, but it's a distribution of anything, right? I think, I forget where I, uh, I was in a book somewhere, but like a disproportionate number of uh, trees in the forest that get to a certain height. Uh, disproportion of stars in the universe that get to a certain size. And then basically the Matthew principle, book of Matthew from the Bible is to he who has everything, everything shall be given. But to you, he who has nothing, everything shall be taken. And it's just like, if you can just get him on the court more, he will get and garner the skill needed to be on the court more. Yes. Right? It's like kind of roughly an 80-20 rule. Actually, no. If I got this right, it's, a, it's kind of, I think it's represented by what's called the Pareto distribution, which is the square root of half of the people in the organization do 50% of the work. Yeah. So break that down, right? So if you have nine people in an organization, three people are going to be representative of, of 50% of yeah. the work, right? So square root of the square, no, the square root of the total number of people in an organization do 50% of the work, not half. So that's, that's the goal is to be that square root. Right, because that the compounding interest on being in that position is only going to help favor. And you see this, like it's funny, Zidane Chara popped into my head. There's, it's not by accident that Zidane Chara is in the NHL, because when you go back to I forget what it's, it's another Gladwell book. It might be Outliers. I think it's Outliers, where it's you start to realize that people who are taller or people who are born earlier in the year have better opportunities as kids to get coached by better coaches. They get more playing time to harvest the skill that they have because they have the one thing you can't teach, right? They have size, can't teach size. So Zidane Ochara guaranteed was playing a few years up because of his size. Yeah. So he got to expedite his like his experience and a strength conditioning coach there would be like, okay, just don't get hurt, right? Like we can start to do this, this, and this, but... It's he got to, he's so much more, uh, he has, he has such a deeper pocket of experience and skill as a consequence of just being who he is right now. If you're Muggsy Bogues, you have a bit of an uphill battle, but if you're a strength coach working with a Muggsy Bogues, like, let's just get you, keep you on the court. Yeah. Right? So you can be the guy who doesn't get subbed out in the third quarter, fourth quarter. You just stay on the court long enough. And you start to see this, like players stay on the court longer. They stay on the court longer. Right, teams that possess the ball longer are going to win more games. Pure yeah. ball possession is going to be one of the biggest, or puck possession is one of the biggest indicators of a win versus a loss. Just and this comes down to money ball, right? If we try to talk about you know uh, economics and yeah. getting into your world with baseball, if you break down the economics of it, like okay, just have the puck, 
just have the soccer ball. Just have it. Yeah. If we focus on just having it, then when it comes to the, your real job as a strength coach, it's like keep the players in the game. If they worry about keeping the puck, we worry about keeping them on the ice or keeping them on the thing. But if they can just stay in, like from an overall statistical perspective, the teams that do the best are the teams that have some of the less, and this isn't always true, but with the statistic you're striving for is the least amount of man games lost in a season. Yeah. Right? There's a service, there's actually a website that I just, uh, pay money to get this data because it's pertinent to me as a strength and conditioning coach, and it's literally called man games lost. And I can go across any professional sport and they do all the statistics and you can see the teams that win championships and their man games lost and the teams that don't even make the playoffs and their man games lost. Hurt teams don't win championships, right? So if we reverse engineer all the way down to what are, again, our lowest tier fucking bottom feeder status as strength coaches and don't ever forget that's where you lie in this organization. It's like all you're trying to do is set a, set a, a, a trend in motion. Like, let's keep you on the let's keep you in the game longer. Why? So you can keep the ball more. Why? So you can win more games and not get hurt. Why? So you can win championships and play more years and win and and win more titles and and make more money. Right? And, but it starts with that understanding of like if we simplify our our rung on the ladder, you just do that and you'll have a career. And that's the thing, right? And I think like basketball because of the direct matchups in basketball, it's such a good sport to see this in where it's like you'll look at teams that maybe don't have the X factor other teams had, but they're able to win from the fact that none of the guys who operate at 75 to 80 on 2K ever have to leave the court. Like the Pistons won in like, it's 2004. Chauncey, you're talking Chauncey Billups days? Yeah. You're talking like, Sheed Wallace days? Yeah, Rasheed don't Wallace, come at like, me with Sheed Wallace days, yeah, homie. Rasheed Wallace, Ben Wallace... Uh, Tayshawn Prince, Chauncey Billups, Rip Hamilton. Oh, I think I'm gonna cry. None of these guys ever had to get off the court. No, they don't even have to be the best because eventually the best guys in the other team are gonna have to go on the bench, right. and the worst guys are gonna have to be on the court. Yeah. Well, the longer they can keep Wallace and Wallace on the court, the better the Pistons do. Right. So it's like when we look at teams, and like I had a call about this with a, with a basketball coach from the UK last week. It was like. When you look at teams, it's like we create these, these two sides to the team. It's the X-Factor guys right. who are already really good at what they do, and they play 48 minutes. Well, they already play like 38, 40 minutes of the game. I'm not going to have them do 38, 40 minutes in the weight room. They're already doing it, right? right? Like that bank account is expended. So they're going to go over, sit in the corner, chill out, do some depth jumps, do some stability stuff, whatever, relax. But it's like the Wallaces of the team, dude, those guys are going to bench press. They're going to deadlift. They're going to fucking trap our jump. They're going to push a sled because it's like their ability to A, get a paycheck and B, for my, my team to win is their resiliency to never leave the court. Right. It's like, I need you to be a tough motherfucker minute 30, just like you were minute one right. guy who's really good is already doing the work because he can, because he's the X factor athlete. So he doesn't really have to do anything. You can go in the sit in the corner, play 2k if he wants to, but like you have to push the sled because you don't have the X factor. You're not going to hit the jumper from the elbow 31 minutes into the game. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're going to take a charge. So go take a charge, right? Yeah, and it's like, that's the, like, if the better, the, the better Rashid Wallace takes the charge and sets the pick, the less Rip Hamilton has to do that. So I'm not going to train Rip Hamilton to set a pick because right. that's not what I want him to do. And your goal is to be able to have Rashid set that pick 
into triple overtime. Yeah. Right. That's that's where you start to expense his bank account last. Yeah. Right. Now we're going to start to credit that account so you can take these withdrawals. You know, every time someone tries to charge to the paint and you just post up and you eat a guy to the yeah. shoulder, that's going to be drawing from a much larger reserve. Right. And so that you can just be that attrition guy because basketball is a super interesting sport because basketball, we talked about this a bit in the past. Basketball is a, a weak link or a, a strong link sport. It's a weak link sports versus strong link sports. We're like, look, we're in the, I think we're in the NBA finals right now. We're Lakers versus Heat, right? King, they won. King James is, hey? They won. Who did? Lakers. So King James won again. Because of course he did. And I didn't even have to know this to know that. Like, I was just like, I know yeah. LeBron got paid. But that is such proof of concept that this is a strong link sport, right? And he's the strongest link. You, we've put him in three separate cities and we just got hardware on these rings. That's not. Like lightning has a hard enough time striking once, but when it strikes three times, it's like, all right, this guy's clearly drawing the lightning. He's the strong link. But in order to like, I think there are four other guys on the court. Like Braun Braun should be just sitting in like, you know, doing Braun Braun things on the gram, doing TikTok videos with his family or whatever, like doing fucking yeah. Charlton Banks. Well, the rest of those four guys, you, you fucking, you better have the Federal Reserve to yeah. be there. And if not, there's a guy on the bench who can go... 48 minutes and be there just taking the punches because you let your strong link do strong link things. Yeah, like I remember... I can't believe they fuck it. I mean, I can, but that guy's unbelievable. There's a wicked interview with uh, Iman Shumpert from the Cavs days where he talks about like LeBron James's IQ and how he knows everything about every team in the league. And he's like, this guy's going to be there at this moment. Go stand over there. And the guy's always there. And like LeBron grabs this ball behind the net, like behind the back pass at the baseline right to Kevin Love's hands. And his only instruction is the ball's going to be in the corner. You better be in the corner. And he fucking grabs this ball, doesn't even look, chucks it behind his back right to Kevin Love. Kevin Love hits the corner three. And it's like LeBron James doesn't need any work. He's LeBron James. Kevin fucking Love better have the cardio to be in that fucking corner to catch that ball. So it's like when they roll into the weight room, I know who LeBron is. I'm like, LeBron, what do you want to do today? Okay, goodbye. Like, that's, <laughs> that's not nepotism. Right. Braun is Braun. Like, let him do something because, remember, he holds that team down. Right. Whereas this, we're talking about economics. Neurological versus physiological bank account. Braun's what? 6'8", 6'9", 285. So does his physiological bank account ever get depleted? I really doubt it. He's right. a fucking unit. But he carries the team. He knows the the fucking dossier on every team in the league. And when he's on the floor or on the bench or at home, he's calling it in and coaching the team. Neurological bank account fried. Because if Braun doesn't win, Braun doesn't look invincible anymore. Right. So he rolls in the weight room. No, we're not going to do fucking ass to grass back squat, you piece of shit. You're going to go sit in the corner and play 2K. Yeah. Kevin Love, no one knows who you are. Go in the corner. <laughs> yeah. Go in the corner, pick the barbell up. But that's how it works, right? It's like Dennis Rodman's not MJ. MJ can smoke cigars with his... Blood red, <laughs> so yeah. His blasted. bloodshot eyes blasted in the interview. Do whatever he wants. Dennis Rodman's got to go over there and do some jobs. Yeah. Dennis Rodman's got to grab boards. And, then and like, go to North Korea. that's what we don't understand is it's that's that bank account, right? Like, if you're going to hold the team down, you're going to be the face of a brand and the face of a team and know everything. And the game is always going to be your fault, no matter if you win or lose. Right. That guy's neurological system is wrecked constantly. Right. He owns that team. Number eight. Who cares who that guy is? Yeah. Just be there to catch the, be there to be ready to get off the bench 
when number 23 is tired. Like, yeah. he's tired now. You have to go out there, and you just have to globetrotter it for a few minutes till he catches his breath. Right. But you have to be ready to do that. And it's like, that guy's got no neurological bank account. Makes 100K, gets to ride around the tour bus, smoke fat J's. That's all he wants to do. Good for him, man. Yeah. Let him do that. Let him play a couple minutes on the court. Yeah, I mean, it's like there's someone's playing chess and someone's the pieces. Yeah. Right. And Braun Braun's the he's the he's the chess master. Yeah. Where this guy's a a brook or whatever the fuck yeah. the horse he won or the castle he won. Yeah. It's it's an interesting thought because it's it's so hard. It, and this is where I think decentralization. This is where me and you have kind of like. I don't want to say made a market, but people have done in the past, but individualized conditioning for us or strength conditioning for one athlete. Yeah. Like I had to, I had to, you know, not like make a strong argument for, but like one of my guys like just shouldn't be running. Why does he have to do 300 meter gassers? Like I thought like he's like, he plays the special teams and he shouldn't be doing this. Like he's not going to do this. Right. But I, I sympathize for someone who has a team strength role because you can't look at it like, you know, the usual nomenclature is like, you know, we got bigs, we got skills. No, you have fucking 54 guys. Yeah. You have 54 guys in a weight room if you're an NFL team. You know, split them up in a session. It's like you need to have 55 or 54 different approaches. Right? Basketball becomes a little bit more tangible, but a lot of these guys are starting to realize that they need that oversight. Like I need someone to like see from 26,000 feet from this bird's eye view, like, where am I on this chessboard, right? And how, how do I be the most effective piece or am, or am I the guy calling the shots, which is going to be a totally different way to look at it. Um, but yeah, physiological bank accounts, the, the, the uh, economics of training, the uncanny valley of shapes in the weight room. This is where I think people should have like more philosophical conversations about training. Like, I think when we can think laterally and get away from the X's and O's and actually start to apply concepts that are proven in other, in other domains, this is where I think strength coaches need to start spending more time. Because, like, the conversations they have are so rep sets, you know, HRV, max V, A cell, bar speed, force plate, dex, data, GPS. It's like... Guys, no, like they, it's been done well and it's been done well in better in other industries. Sample from that because I think I, I really like the idea because it's not just it's not just strength and conditioning theory. It is the cornerstone of strength and conditioning application. Yeah. And it's like and that's that thing. It goes back to like what you said. It's like I'm not I'm not painting these unknown corners of this map that I've never been able to read before. I'm drawing a border around it, so I'm not looking at parts of the map that don't matter to me. Like, if I want to know how to get from here to Windsor, I'm not going to look at a fucking atlas, right? I'm going to zoom all the way in on fucking Google Maps and pull up just the portion where I see Toronto to Windsor. I'm not painting unknown corners of some topography I've never, you know, experienced before. I can experience hours of it on YouTube. I could go to a fucking game. I could talk to a basketball player, a football player, a baseball player. It's like now what I'm doing is I'm painting the borders around what we're going to do. And like once I've painted the borders around what we're going to do, I can do a cost analysis of what everything costs. I can write down every movement I want to do in the weight room. I can write down the minutes that you play and the position that you play and I can watch it and go, a pick costs this much, free throw costs this much. You play these minutes of the game. Like I can, dude, basketball is so analytical. I could look up every minute of every game you've ever played and find out where you were on the court when you either missed a shot, took a shot, set a pick, got a block. And it's like, 
I can now figure out the cost benefit of those depending on when they happen in the game for you, physiological to neurological. I can look at the exercises I've chosen. I can go, this is neuro, this is, physio, this is neuro, this is physical. And I can go like, okay, minus all these. These all go away. Like you don't have the bank account for that. Or you need a better bank account for that. So we're going to start to pepper in these adaptations dependent on where they exist in the order of exercise. In that batting order, it's like, oh, you don't actually need neurological adaptation early in the workout. You need like some way of like back-ending your workout from the previous day to front-end physiological conditioning today, but the back-end of this workout is actually going to be neurological for your, what you're going to do tomorrow. Like I want to train you in a physiological fatigue state to neurologically adapt to something right. because you don't have to do it until the 38th minute. Yeah. So like it's about creating like a, an exercise budget, but also understanding like longer term trends in the market, right? Because I think we get, again, almost in an inverse way, when we look at periodization from a programming standpoint, people miss, we, we can talk about phasic potentiation in a macro setting, but what you're talking about is phasic potentiation in a micro setting. You're phase potentiating every day, yes. right? We're gonna, pre, we're gonna preload metabolic and 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 backload neurologic why because dude you're you're fucking you're hooking left on all your three balls or anything outside of like 30 feet in the fourth quarter so you you're not being able to you as you're tired you can't get the neurological side figured out so we're going to get you in the weight room and create a a surplus of your ability to uh draw into that system make a withdrawal from that account and still have something there to purchase yeah and it's like it's like that it's that idea like i always like just say this line and like obviously we'll go into it in later dates in the courses that are coming up but it's like micro progressions and it's like i think that's so crucial and like i unfortunately brought up the skill acquisition model and then we all looked at it in the sense of over the course of a day we have cognitive associative autonomous but it's like that model isn't daily like that's fucking so zoomed in. Like that model is weekly. Yeah. yeah. That, that model is like not even over a week, but over a block. And it's like, dude, cognitive may not exist some days. Autonomous may not exist some days. It could just be associative, just be autonomous, just be cognitive. It could be combinations of these. We could look at it overlaid atop, you know, your external and uh, stressors to the weight room. We could look at it in terms of your sport. We could look at it in terms of, fucking where you are weather wise right like if you play in minnesota and you're in the fucking grapefruit league guess what that's a stressor it's a zillion fucking degrees outside so it's like we have to equate and it's the training wheels man it's like we learn to ride the training wheels with both on the ground and then we raise one up a little bit we raise the other one up a little bit and it's like we start to identify and address perturbations but not just the fact that uh, perturbation exists to movement or a uh, you know, a deviation exists to movement, but what is that deviation? What's the cost of it? It's like, we have to look at it. Like you said, it's like, it's a micro scale of what we do. And it's like, you know, not, we talked about this on this podcast already. Like shit doesn't matter till it matters. It's like, dude, the fucking $5 surcharge on Uber Eats doesn't matter until you add it up and you spent $500 in surcharges. If you would have looked at that surcharge in a micro way, you'd have $500 more on the 30th of the month. Like I have to pay rent. I live in a world of micro adaptations. Yeah, I think being able to, it's its a principle of orthogonality of, of breadth and depth, Yeah. right? And that's like, 
in the micro we go deep in a day but in the macro we go wide across time right that x-axis is always the independent variable of time whenever you see a graph time is never on the y yeah time is always moving horizontally right as it's just this never-ending independent variable where everything else is seemingly dependent on time like we talk about time distance and load time being like within a training confines variable of increasing density decreasing rest periods increasing reps increasing sets increasing frequency right but, and we talk about this with exercise progression in a similar fashion in the way you just kind of described cognitive associated autonomous it's like you know the progression of time distance and load was taught to me by you know ben Pakolsky, and i used to think that it was just like you know i'm going to take this exercise do it for more reps i'm going to do it for a greater range of motion i'm going to do it heavier but then when we talk about intent-based programming, you realize that longitudinally, it's the intent has to progress through exercise selection across time, distance, and load. Sure, do a bird dog. Do it, do it, do three sets, four sets, five sets, uh, eight reps, 10 reps, 12 sets, uh, every other day to every day, once a week, twice a week, three times a week, four times a week. Uh, do it on 60 seconds rest, do it on 45, so do it on 30, right? We're, we're increasing that variable of time in an exercise that might benefit solely from that. I don't want to then strap fucking ankle weights to Gladys and have her be doing bird dogs weighted. Right. Or I don't want to have bird dogs from my deficit or some shit. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Right. I want to take that. Okay. Posterior bleak sling, anti-rotation, anti-extension moment. Now I'm going to go, you know, we talk about the micro progression in the way we index and scale, right? Indexing and scaling exercises is like one of like the core tenets of like the level one. It's a core tenets of the way we program. And it's just like, all right, what's next from bird dog that might actually improve from a distance standpoint? What's the progression? Well, you know, you talk about bear crawl. I might go single leg RDL or we use those as dis now all of a sudden we've increased distance, but not in the movement of the bird dog itself, but in the intent that is driven by the stimulus and hopefully uh, subsequent adaptation mm -hmm. of that exercise selection. Then we go through that. It's like, okay, let, let's, we can only single leg RDL to, you know, 30 degrees. So that's fine. Great. We're going to improve the distance as a training variable or as a stimulus to drop, to get that desired adaptation. Then as we move further along that time distance in load chronological order not in depth in an exercise but across breadth of intent over time now i'm going to go to a single arm dumbbell row right single arm dumbbell row with the intent of counter rotation from lat to opposite side glute in this functional gait cycle pattern now we've just gone time distance and load as a progression right with micro progressions layered underneath those micro progressions being in the in the realm of time for the exercise in which it suggests in the overall, you know, uh, across the x-axis where that fits. And as we move across the x-axis, we're now in a position where we're increasing distance, right? So we're going to, maybe we use external means of support with the dowels on the hinge, right? You know, two, which one, you know, bilateral to contralateral, uh, contralateral to ipsilateral to unsupported, right? We've increased distance, we've minimized base support as we've done so. Now it's we move further across that x-axis to load. Now we start to make micro progressions in the way we progressively overload that exercise. But trying to see this graphical representation of intent-based programming, I think is a lot is one of I think a lot of people's blind spots when it comes to making at the end of the day when we look at okay what what credit or what debt have we accrued right what surplus have we created what what adaptations have we credited this bank account with it's like it, it's and that's why i say i say it all the fucking time these things don't add up they multiply the economics of training that's compounding interest yeah and it's like i look at it the same way like this squatober thing that's going on and like shout out to people who want to put in work fine i'm here for it but it's like, I look at like, I made the joke about like knee flexion November. It's like, how can I intelligently train 
you know, like movements that say like go through knee flexion to some degree over a week and like where can I tie in and, you know, like hide the vegetables and the spaghetti sauce with knee flexion. But it's like day one, like day one of a program, low ability to adapt neurologically and physiologically because there's not a great enough cumulative stress. So it's like I go front foot elevated, split squat, contralaterally loaded, suggest rotation, weight release at the bottom, allow me to explore an unloaded end range. I pick the weight back up mid range. I finish the movement. Day three, I go rear foot elevated split squat, ipsilaterally loaded. I suggest a more upright torso. I resist anti-lateral flexion. I'm ipsilaterally loaded. I go through a greater degree of uh, knee flexion in its uh, adaptation of a posterior pelvic tilt potentially at the bottom due to upright torso. Then day four, I go uh, rear foot elevated safety bar split squat. If I'm an athlete, I get to introduce probably the, the greatest level of neurological adaptation to a unilateral movement uh, via load, safety bar obviously just making this movement easier. And then day five, I go front squat or I go barbell back squat, more physiological output in the sense that if I can unilaterally split squat, I can easily high bar back squat. I'm now suggesting a greatest uh, ability to exert force under load. Day six, if I want to keep going, I go leg press or hack squat externally supported. I'm able to train now through both load and time being reps. So it's like I can go from the most cognitive adaptation of front foot elevated split squat, exploring abduction, external rotation, uh, rotation. Then I can go rear foot elevated split squat, anti-lateral flexion, the action of simply flexion extension at the hip and the knee. Then I go a loaded version of what I just did. So I'm now associating that rear foot elevated split squat with a barbell. Now I'm taking what I associated with the barbell split squat wise to a bilateral movement, which is the high bar back squat. I'm exerting the greatest force under this associative task. Then I move to autonomous and I back end it with hack squat, which I can suggest abduction, external rotation, posterior pelvic tilt of the hips in an externally stabilized position with the greatest physiological output, least neurological output. And then I can train knee flexion every day and I can literally rinse and repeat the next week. K2 coaching, Killian Hamilton. You didn't fucking blink that entire time. That was impressive. That was, I, I, I get what people, I feel like how people feel when they listen to me talk, when I listen to you talk like that. And I just go, wow. It's just rain, man. No, it's great though. R-E-I-G-N. No, I think it's, it's good. That's proof of concept, man. That's why I love podcasts. Cause like people can sit there and listen or see you do that. And then it's like, that's what you want in a coach, right? Like you don't want someone to be like, well, you know, it depends. It's like, all right, here are all the variables in which it is dependent on. And I will in a single breath, not blink and give you all of the scenarios, how these things flow together. Yeah. Like I do calls with clients like every week we sit down and we talk. And to be honest with you, Zoom pops up. It's like they're connecting to audio. The minute it says audio connected, I rant and I go and then I'm like, all right, now I'm going to let you talk. And I always leave them 10 minutes. So 50 minutes is for me to just say whatever I want. Then 10 minutes they can ask questions. Yeah. That's not true. You can ask any questions you want. But it's like uh, I sit in this cement shoebox and it's like I just think of ideas and like perturbations to movement and how they affect or not affect things and, and how we can like sell into movement like a function in which we can replay later on. Like a modality is obviously going to lend itself to m its message. And a certain message can only be delivered by a certain modality. And it's like if I want to get better at squatting or better at knee flexion, this is the, the hyper-specificity of sport to the hyper-specificity of the weight room. It's like squatting is a squat. It's an expression of function and strength exhibited under maximal load. Great, but it's an expression of that. 
If I want to get better at abduction, external rotation, understanding, you know, thoracic flexion and rotation of my trunk as I go through hip flexion, knee flexion, active dorsiflexion of an ankle, that's not going to happen in a high bar squat because I've got 85% on my back. You know what's going to happen? I'm going to just get up. But I can explore that in a front foot elevated split squat with a kettlebell where I let go of it at the bottom and then explore an end range of abduction, external rotation, flexion of the trunk. It's like, okay, that explores this contralateral, you know, hip dominant function moment. But it's like, now I want to explore this action moment of the knee that might even be suggesting a level of, you know, a neutrality or internal rotation in a more upright torso. Well, I'm going to go rear foot elevated ipsilateral. I'm going to reduce the anti-flexion moment of being ipsilaterally loaded, which we see breakdown in gait cycle mechanics of sprinters. So I'm going to load rear foot that way. Now it's anti-flexion. Well, then I'm going to take these two pieces that I've put together, the abduction and external rotation suggestion with the action of flexion extension at the knee and the hip in a timely manner, and I'm going to put them underneath a barbell. Well, now the barbell is the expression of the two things that I developed with a modality that spoke to them. Right? And it's like everybody you see windmill out of the bottom of a squat, either via rotation, if their knee caves to valgus, if they go through lateral flexion on either side, it's like, well, I'm improving those things with the modality directive of that result. I'm expressing the previous work as a back end to the front end of the squat. I'm not going to front end and prime my squat with a bunch of unloaded movements that provide no stimulus. Like you squat 700, 800 pounds. What the fuck is Spanish squat and Peterson step down going to do? But if I load you in a rear foot elevated split squat two days previous, if I load you in a front foot elevated split squat five days previous, you know, oh, one day to game time, you hop under the barbell. What's like, well, now you're expressing work that was done in a state in which you were able to adapt based on modality and bank account of stress. It's like we can express all we want. Easy. Done. K2 coaching. Killian Hamilton. Training economy. That's all it is. Uncanny Valley. RX Radio.